Over the years of my life, my family and loved ones nearest to me have at various times observed a possible tendency of mine, a potential flaw in my character. They claim that I always have to be right, which let's be clear, they're wrong about. I mean, I can entertain the possibility that I might always need to be right, and I think that, just the entertainment of that possibility, is an irrefutable proof itself that I don't always have to be right, right? You know, as I think back, math was my always favorite, sub- was always my favorite subject in school. You know, there was a right answer, a wrong answer, black and white, so this might line up with someone whose inner life is driven towards absolute correctness. I could also understand why evangelical Christianity might have had such a hold on me early on, too. There was a right answer, there was a wrong answer, black and white. All you had to do was read the Bible and follow what it said. Done. And you could see how maybe the person of Paul could become a favorite of someone who loved to be right, because no one could argue like Paul. And if anyone was doing so successfully, the accounts of it don't survive in the Bible. I do love Paul, and did from the moment I first read him. This trait about Paul also happens to be why some people dislike Paul to a great extent. His tone, it's not often conciliatory. He's pretty black and white at first glance. And since Paul's letters comprise two-thirds of the New Testament, there's really no way to avoid him, even if you don't like him. But today, we get a different glimpse of who Paul was. We read his letter to Philemon. We heard all but the last four, four verses of it, actually. This entire book of the Bible fits on one sheet of paper. It's the shortest book in the New Testament at only 25 verses, 335 words long. And it's unique for Paul because it's the only personal correspondence we have. We have Lots of him writing to churches, but not to friends. But before we delve any further into Paul's psyche, let's set the stage for this letter. Paul writes to Philemon and his wife, Aphia, who lead a house church in Colossia. Philemon owned a slave named Onesimus, who ran away some time ago. Onesimus crossed paths with Paul, and the slave converts to Christianity and becomes close to Paul. In this letter, Paul calls Onesimus his own heart. Now, Paul sends Onesimus back to his master Philemon, bearing this letter we just read, which asks Philemon to reconsider Onesimus' status as a slave. So slavery in the Roman Empire was not as we understand it now as Americans in a country built on a horror that lasted centuries, where men and women from Africa were chattel, lifelong, and generational property based on skin color. Slavery in Rome, while not an improvement in terms of human dignity, 
would have been a station in life people could move in and out of. Virtually anyone could become a slave. Historians estimate that anywhere from 35 to 40 percent of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. It was a given societally. And uh, it was given in much the same way that the ever-widening wealth gap is a given in our own. And slaves were certainly abused, and importantly for this letter, could be killed if they ran away from their masters. Paul knows this letter from Onesimus, uh, on Onesimus's behalf, means life or death. And finally, as I mentioned, this letter is the one time we see Paul writing to a person, Philemon. Not a group, not a church. Notice the difference. There's no theological treaties to be found here. Paul does not argue with Philemon as he does with the Colossians or the Galatians or the Corinthians. He does not teach in this letter. What he does might, if you are a detractor, change the way you think about Paul. So listen again. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. I wanted to keep him with me, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Paul knows what the right move is here for Philemon, no doubt. He's already written multiple letters to churches where he spells it out clearly. In Christ, there is No more distinction, Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. He says it over and over. He gets in fights with Peter and James and the other disciples over this conviction. He writes scathing letters to communities who divide fellow Christians into the same categories that the world does. But here, differently, Paul starts with expectation. Philemon, he says, you know what's right, and you can do what's right. When has someone believed the best of you? And not forced it out of you, but let you take it on and rise to the occasion. Let's be clear that there is no question that Philemon is going to follow what Paul wants. It's very much like my bishop writing me a letter and saying, Amber, I know you'll do the right thing here and laying it on a little thick. I'm going to do the thing that he expects. But I wonder how much more became possible for the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus after this point. What did Paul's expected yes make possible in Philemon's heart? Here's what I mean. Richard Rohr writes that 
the great wisdom teachers and mystics say in various ways that you cannot truly see or understand anything if you begin with a no. You have to start with a yes of basic acceptance, which means you do not too quickly label, analyze, or categorize things in or out, good or bad. You have to be taught how to leave the field open. The ego or false self strengthens itself by constriction, by being against, or by reaction. The ego feels loss or fear when it approaches subtlety and mystery. Living out of the spirit of God within us involves a positive choice, inner spaciousness, and conscious understanding rather than resistance, knee-jerk reactions, or defensiveness. He adds, it's not easy to live this way. You know, there's an allure about always being right. The comfort of a self-righteous conviction that you alone know the truth. It's a defense, too, that protects you, which leads down a well-worn path named what is wrong with everyone else. This reflexive no and turns out not to be the way of Paul after all, nor is it the way of God. God starts with a yes, with us too, an openness in which we can grow. God apparently cherishes this spaciousness. I often wish he didn't so much. The state of my soul would be a much tidier place if pieces of my will could be erased and replaced with God's. But it also wouldn't be a human soul anymore, which is apparently something God values so much as to allow our world to keep ticking on as it does, full of people like me, like you. God has opened this space before us believes more is possible for this world, for you, invites us into it as we learn to become 